0: Good morning, everyone. It's my delight to bring to you our first Bible reading, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he said, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son of God, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Okay, and the second reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For Surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted.
1: Well, thank you, David and Rachel. And if you're uh, visiting us today, hello, my name is Chris, uh, and I'd love to meet you personally afterwards. It's good to be here. And here we are in our combined gathering. Cool, hey? It's great. Father, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, please open our eyes to think carefully and to be able to understand the importance of who Jesus is and his coming amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, if you were here, we looked at the obvious question about God. How can God be three and one, that's a Trinitarian question. Today we're looking at a question about Christ himself. How can Jesus be both God and man? More specifically, if Jesus really is God, how can he also be truly human? You can't not ask this question when you read the Gospels. So the classic example of this is at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has died, he has risen from the dead, and right before he ascends into heaven, um, he appears before his disciples on the mountain in Galilee. And we're told of the disciples' reaction. When they saw him, they worshipped him, except some doubted. (laughs) And we understand their hesitation, You're only meant to worship God. Here is Jesus, clearly the risen Lord, the Lord of life and death, back from the dead. And yet, he's a person. Is it really right to worship him? So this question of how can Jesus be God and man was asked from the very beginning. And for us, it's not just a theoretical question. This connects with what I think we love most about Jesus and what attracts us most to him. So I want you to stop and think at the start of the talk, what moment in the Gospels illustrates what you love most about Jesus? Is there an episode, uh, a story of Jesus that's special to you, that speaks most to you about what you love about Jesus, Um, I'm going to give you a moment to turn to the person beside you or just around you and share what you think. Go. Okay, if you um, haven't had a chance to talk yet. (laughs) I didn't mean that to kill the conversation. (laughs) Okay, now um, I wonder uh, if anyone's brave enough to share, what moment in the Gospels uh, do they uh, speaks to them the most about what they love most about Jesus. Narelle's going to run around with a microphone. Does anyone want to share? Hands up so she can see. Stand up, Narelle, so people can see you. Simon's got one up here, Narelle. Fabulous,
0: there. Simon.
2: I'm happy to kick off. Um, I think for me, the first thing that came to mind was Jesus when he was challenged with the woman caught in adultery um, in, from John 8, just the fact that Jesus... He's aware of that they're trying to catch him out, um, and yet um, Jesus, and he, Jesus knows the law. Um, he he is the one who could condemn her, and yet he ch- turns it round, and he offers her grace and, and mercy and love. Grace for
1: sinners. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Simon. Anyone else down the back? We've got Maren. Thanks. Good on you, Narelle. Exercise this morning. That's good. (laughs) The rest of you might want to think about what one you want to share. Yeah, Maren.
0: For me, it's the story of Lazarus. When Lazarus dies, and Jesus goes to the tomb, and he weeps, even though he knows that he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. That sharing in the pain of the sisters, that true, yeah, true pain of death, even though, and he shares it, even though he will defeat it.
1: Thank, thank you, Maren. Anyone else? Michelle,
0: um, I've got a bit of a different one. I actually really like the
1: time when Jesus got angry in the temple with all of the... Um, <laughs> with, <laughs> Marty thinks that's funny, but anyway, keep going, Michelle. <laughs> uh,
0: because it, it shows to me that um, Jesus, who's both man and God, um, can be righteously angry about things that are just so wrong against God. Um, and yet he didn't sin in anything that he did, so yeah. I really like that. It doesn't
1: mean that we're allowed to be angry at our kids for thank, no thank good you. reason. Okay, great. <laughs> and Phil down here, but thank you for that. Uh, his anger at hypocrisy. Yep, and I really like the uh, story, or the, the, uh, the time when uh, the friends
2: of the paralytic want to take their mm. friend to... To Jesus, They can't get in to see him because their crowds are in the house, so they climb up on the roof and dig a hole and lower him down. And then Jesus heals him, but then he also says, yeah. what's it easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to um, rise and get up and walk?
1: Yeah. And then he does. Does it, yeah. Okay, thank you. And forgiveness is something only God can hand out. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I wondered if you noticed the common element in those answers, and I I think if we kept going, we'd see it come out. Um, Either it's his deep humanity, his compassion, his weeping, sharing in pain, his suffering for us, or it's that Jesus does the things that only God can do, forgives sins, Raises the dead, calms the storm, etc. The truth is, we are drawn to both aspects of Jesus. We love his humanity because he reveals how deeply human God is. And we love seeing his divinity because here is a man who reveals God. So we love that Jesus had both sides to him and were attracted to him, his humanity and his divinity. Why do we love it? Because I think instinctively we know deep down we need Jesus to have both sides. And if we really need Jesus to be both God and man, then what that means is that there is a danger inherent in disbelieving that this might be true. Back in 2010, Narelle and I went to Tully Gorge where people go whitewater rafting in far north Queensland. Um, we found this great spot for swimming. We didn't go rafting, but we, we were too late for that. We missed it. But uh, we found this great spot for swimming where the rafts come down to. And so in we went. We were there happily swimming across the river over the submerged trees there, climbing on the rocks in the middle of the river. And it wasn't until we, had finished, we were driving out of the car park that we saw the sign with this big crocodile (laughs) on it and this big word that said, you know, for ignorant German backpackers, you know, and then I felt the colour drain completely out of my face at that point because we had thought we were safe but we were, obviously in danger, right? Now, spiritually speaking, history has shown that we can be in the same naive danger if we end up believing an answer to the question of how can Jesus be God, and an answer that's wrong, okay? Our starting point in tackling this has to be the Bible which guides us in truth and which stops us going down a wrong path. There's no better place to start than Hebrews chapters one and two, because chapter one focuses on Jesus' divinity and chapter two on his humanity. So if you've got a Bible there or on your phones, open it up um, or it's in your leaflet. Okay, so Jesus is introduced to us in chapter one as God's majestic son. He is the one who reveals God to us clearly. And more than that, he's the agent of creation. He is the one through whom God made the universe. And all of that is just like this big drum roll, right, heading up to this big announcement that God's majestic son is, bang, 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 fully God. Verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being who not only made our world, who sustains it by his powerful word, which means he's not some superhuman or just some heavenly angel. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? None. Or again, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be his father, he will be my son? None. Verse six, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. Something that should only happen for God himself. Verse seven, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wins, wins his servants flames of fire, that's good. But about the sun, he says, and please note this, memorize it, understand it, believe it. Your throne, O God, about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. So Hebrews chapter 1 straight away corrects the Christadelphians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the um, Muslims without even mentioning what they believe. It hammers the point repeatedly that Jesus, God's Son, is fully God. But then in the next chapter comes the other side of Jesus' identity, that at the same time as Jesus being fully God, he was also 100% human. Listen to verses 14 to 18, we're halfway through a discussion about who Jesus helps. Verse 14, since the children, that is us, since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity. To save us from death, he had to become exactly like us. But verse 16, because it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, in other words, he helps human beings, not superhumans. So therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. Now, why? Verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now, why? Why does he need to be a high priest? So that as our high priest, that is the middleman between us and God, right, he makes, number one, atonement for the sins of the people, and number two, verse 18, as high priest, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, without Jesus as God being fully human, Jesus wouldn't be our high priest, and therefore, Hebrews says, he couldn't provide atonement and nor could he provide us with grace and help when we're being tempted. But wonderful news, here's the great news, because we have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity. He became our brother, made like us in every way. Let's think about that. That means Jesus experienced hunger, and we know he did after fasting in the desert. The Bible says so. Because he was like us in every way, he had a body, that means he had to be washed. He had to be fed, he had to be toileted. He was like us in his body and in his mind, he had limited knowledge. Luke tells us as a boy, Luke 2, 52, he grew in wisdom, meaning that he did not know everything from day one. He wasn't lying in the manger reciting the laws of thermodynamics. Um, When the bleeding woman touched him and he was healed, he kept asking, who touched me? Who touched me? Until he found out. He didn't know the hour of his return. No one knows the hour, not even the son, but only the father. So he had limited knowledge. Also, he knew weariness. The son of man has no place to lay his head. People coming constantly to him with their big, burdens and their needs which he took upon himself. No wonder he had to retreat, often to go to a lonely place to pray, to be strengthened because he was weary. And of course like us he knew the joy of close friendship with Peter and James and John, his three close disciples, or Martha, Mary and Lazarus, his close friends. And therefore he knew the grief of losing friends, shedding real tears with Mary over the death of Lazarus and knowing the personal grief of betrayal and abandonment by friends. So he was fully human, he was like us in every way. And Hebrews says, being fully human and fully God, Jesus is able, therefore, to be that middleman between God and us. Without him being fully human and fully God, he couldn't have been that middleman, that high priest, he couldn't have atoned for our sins. Now, let's think about atonement. Most of us, when we hear that word atonement, we think of it as making up for the wrongs we've done. We atone, right? In the Bible, it is something different. It means to turn away God's anger through a sacrifice. Its roots are in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. You can read about that, Leviticus 16. By his death, Jesus, our high priest, offers himself as the sacrifice, to suffer God's anger in our place, so that God's anger is turned away from us and directed onto him. Our need for atonement, it's seen in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, because it's a real need, our sin is personal to God, he loves us, to reject him is no small thing, a rejection of him incurs his anger, And there is judgment day coming. This means we all need our sins atoned for, but we can't do it. The great need of every person who moves along the conveyor belt of life before we drop off the end is for our sins to be atoned for and for God's anger to be turned away. But good news, Hebrews chapter two verse 14 says, Jesus shared in our humanity so that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Now how does he do it? He does it by his death. He gives his life in payment, his life for ours. Only a person can give themselves to substitute in for another person. An angel couldn't substitute in for a person. A person needs to substitute in for a person. But only a person who is God could substitute to pay for the sins of the world. So Jesus had to be fully human and God to be a high priest. Firstly to provide atonement for us and secondly to help us in our struggles. A high priest who's in heaven for us now who cannot understand what we're going through cannot help us. But good news because he's human, Jesus does understand. Flick to Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, if you've got it. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. There we read that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. Now, when it says not being unable to empathize with us, there's two negatives going on, and we think, whoa, that does our head in. That means he can empathize with us. That means that he gets it. He understands your struggles. In fact, when we suffer in our weaknesses and struggles, he suffers with us, even in our temptations, because he gets it, he knows what it's like. He had no advantage over us in his struggle with sin. We say, oh, come on, he was God. It must have been easier for him, not so. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, meaning it was as hard for him as it is for us. He was a bloke, he would have struggled with sexual temptation. He would have struggled with anger. It comes out in that moment of exasperation when he says, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I stay with you? And on top of that, he faced continual temptation not to go down the route of suffering, but to give up on his mission and just choose the route of comfort. This was the essence of the temptation in the wilderness. And so no wonder he had to go and pray often to be strengthened. Because he was human, what it means is he gets our struggles because he lived them, you see. And we think, well, really? I mean, what about mental illness? Well, he may not have had mental illness, but he certainly experienced and lived through the symptoms. You know, in the desert, he heard voices speaking to him when he was weak, offering him the world. It wasn't a delusion of grandeur. <laughs> he actually could have had it. In regards to depression, he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He literally did carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. What about anxiety? In Gethsemane, he was so anxious in praying, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He knows what it's like. He gets it. He gets what it means to be human and weak And yet it's so easy for us, isn't it, to think that because he was God, Jesus just strode through life with temptations bouncing off him like Nerf bullets off off Mr. Incredible. Ping, ping, ping. It's so easy for us to think that when he was tempted by Satan in the desert, it was just easy for him. That he was, you know, (coughs) this close to just fighting, zapping, you know, Satan with the laser, his laser beam eyes, just, or just flinging him round with the strength of Mr. Incredible and flinging Satan off into outer space. But he didn't do that, did he? It's so easy, so easy for us to think that he was just pretending on the cross, that on the cross he didn't really suffer, he just seemed to suffer, but actually, no, it was fine. But I can tell you, if you believe that, then when you struggle, you're not gonna call out to him for help because why would you think he could understand? So you won't go to him for help. And yet the tragedy is for someone in that position is he does understand, he gets it. In the desert, there were no laser beams, there was, was no flinging Satan into outer orbit. All Jesus used to fight Satan was exactly what we have. The Bible. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Hebrews says he was in every way like us except with one thing, he was without sin. Jesus, which means Jesus went beyond our breaking points. And he therefore suffered more than any of us. He is more human than any of us. Because at the point that you or I give in, Jesus didn't. And so he knows what it's like to actually resist further He held out, and what all that means is that because he's human and yet sinless, therefore, this qualifies him. He is able to stand before God in heaven right now as our high priest, our sinless high priest. He gets it, he's God, he's human, he's the perfect high priest for us, he's sinless, he's able to be there, and he's able to represent us. And we can be sure, therefore, that we have a high priest in heaven who has fully atoned for all our sin, and he is able to help us in real time when we call on him in our struggles, because he lives, and that's his ministry now. This is the Jesus Christ of the scriptures. This is the Jesus Christ who is real. He is totally effective. He is unbelievably helpful. But now we get to the question, how? Given Jesus is God, How can God exist as a human? Now history offers us three possible solutions. First by a guy named Apollinarius who was the Bishop of Laodicea. Apollinarius proposed that Jesus Christ's body was human but his mind was divine. How can God exist as a man? Well, Apollinarius says he's got a human body and a divine mind, not a human mind. How can Jesus exist as a man? If you think about it, according to this view, he can't. Not truly. This is the body snatchers view, right? A, a human whose mind gets overtaken. Now maybe that's how we've thought of him. He had a human body, but he never really had a, human th- a truly human thought. What's sacrificed in this view is Jesus' human mind. But that doesn't fit with scripture. What of Jesus' question about who touched him in the crowd? What of Jesus' human cry in Gethsemane for his father to take away the cup of suffering? Surely someone with a non-human mind and only a divine mind wouldn't say such things. A second solution was put forward by a fellow named Nestorius. In answer to the question, how can God exist as a man, he said, separately, so Nestorius held that within the one body there were two persons, one human, one divine, and that some things that Jesus did he clearly did as a human, and some things that Jesus did he clearly did as God, and he kept switching between being God and being man. Need to go to the toilet, it's human Jesus who's doing this, need to encounter suffering, Human Jesus, need to do a miracle, divine Jesus. Now maybe that's how you have thought of Jesus. That when Jesus died, it wasn't God the son dying, it was Jesus the man dying. And that when Jesus walked on water, that couldn't have been Jesus the man, that was Jesus who's God. But again, that doesn't accord with scripture when we read Jesus in the Gospels, he doesn't present as schizophrenic. He presents as a united whole. He is consistently whole. So a third and final proposal was put forward by a guy named Eutychicus, and he rejected the first two proposals, and he said that Jesus began life as a human, but morphed into God, especially after his baptism, when he got a new nature, when the Holy Spirit descended. Right, a man who becomes God. Again, from the Bible, we have to say that's wrong. When Jesus was born, he was born as God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't morph into God, he was from the start. And if he did, suppose, and he left his humanity behind. Well, what tears did Jesus shed in Gethsemane? They look human, don't they? What if his cry of abandonment at the cross? So there are scriptural issues raised with each proposed solution, each one in the end being a false trail. And yet they proved very, very popular. And that enables us, because we know what happened in history, to see the consequences of what happens when you believe in each one. History shows that each proposed solution has serious consequences. They affect our salvation, and they're pastorally disastrous. So let's look at them. First, think of the first solution, Apollinarianism. This is the body snatcher option. Jesus had a human body, but divine mind. All right. Number one, well, in terms of salvation, it lessens our salvation, how so? The truth is our whole selves need saving, right? Our bodies and our minds. Because our bodies and our minds are fallen. Both need to be redeemed. But if Jesus only had a human body, how can our minds be redeemed? Last week we heard of Athanasius, if you were here, and he understood that in order for God to redeem every part of us, Jesus had to become, God had to become like us in every respect, body and mind. By the time Apollinarius had popped onto the scene and Ath- Athanasius had died, but his argument, Athanasius' argument, was championed by the Cappadocian fathers, three men, Gregory of Nanzianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Caesarea. These are great men. Okay, and they championed a slogan of Athanasius, up on the screen, that what is not assumed is not healed, by which they meant. That in order for the whole of us to be redeemed from corruption and decay, Jesus had to be like us in every way. And that unless he was fully human in every sense of the word, we couldn't be fully redeemed. Apollinarius' solution redeems only our bodies, not our minds. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about that. If you've got a redeemed body in heaven, but not a redeemed mind, does that mean you can sin in heaven? Yes, it does. That wouldn't be good, would it? Right? That would be a disaster. Okay, so it affects your salvation. And then, of course, pastorally, It encourages people to imitate Jesus by getting rid of all their human thoughts about their own human needs. But the problem is we do have human needs. Our human needs aren't illusion. Scientology goes down this track which says that all of our human sicknesses are an illusion, all right? In the end, that sort of theology kills people because they don't get treatment. It's pastorally disastrous, physically disastrous too. Okay, And then of course, if you went down this line, there would be no need for a Christian, it would be a waste of time for a Christian to be a doctor or a nurse or a plumber who address would, who would any sort of human need, a fruit grower or anything like that. Disastrous. What of the second solution, Nestorianism? This is the schizophrenic Jesus swapping between human Jesus and divine Jesus. Again, this robs us of a savior, because who died on the cross? Jesus the man. But remember, of course, for us to be redeemed, we need our substitute to be God as well, because only God can, the sinless son of God, can pay for all of humanity's sins, if it's only An innocent man who dies on the cross, he could pay for one person's sins, which is good for that person, but no one else. Yet Nestorius says that the one who died was not the sinless son of God, but only another human. Bang goes our redemption, up in a puff of smoke. That means pastorally, the pastoral message of Nestorianism is not by his wounds you are healed, but follow Jesus' example for your salvation. You have to align your will with God's will and then only by extreme effort could you possibly hope, slimly, to be saved. Again, this is not great news, pastorally disastrous. What of Eutychianism? okay? This is the view that Jesus morphs, the human Jesus morphs into the divine Jesus. Okay, for salvation, again, Who died on the cross? Did only God die on the cross and not a human being? We do need a human to die on the cross for us, for atonement to be effective. And if atonement is not effective, if humanity is not redeemed on the cross, then the message of salvation becomes imitate Jesus and become like God yourself, pastorally disastrous, because who can do that? These views had to be addressed in the year 451 more than 600 bishops met at Chalcedon and concluded that these solutions were not just false, they were dangerous. And with their Bibles open and looking at all the evidence, they came up with a statement and they set the boundaries for what could and could not be said. That Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Not 50% God and 50% man, not 80% God and 20% man or the other way around, but 100% God and 100% human at the same time. That humanity and deity are joined in Jesus without confusion, without change, that is there's no morphing of natures, no human turning into a divine, without division and separation, that's what Nestorius held. That what Jesus did as a man, he did as God. And that what Jesus did as God, he also did as a man. That when Jesus rose the dead, it was a man raising Jesus, raising people from the dead, not just God. When he feeds the 5,000, it's the human being who's doing that, just not, not just God. And also when he dies on the cross, it's not just a man, it is the divine son of God who's dying. Two natures, undivided, in the one person. From this point, any attempt to say Jesus only appeared to be a human being was understood as heretical because it was understood, it robs us of our redemption, our salvation. We do not have a high priest. God is still angry with us. We are still in slavery to the fear of death. We need to save ourselves. Ultimately, it was realized that the Bible does not actually answer the question of how Jesus' two natures, divine and human coexist. It simply acknowledges that they do. Chalcedon said the crucial question is not how can these natures coexist? The crucial question is who? Who is this who dwells among us as God and man? And the answer given to us in Hebrews chapters one and two is Jesus Christ, God's majestic son, God in the flesh, like us in every possible way, except for the one point, that he was without sin. Meaning that he can give us what we need. He can give us atonement for sins, God's anger turned away, and he can help us. So here's the application at the end of all of this. Love him for being truly human and truly God. Now at the start, I said that's instinctively what we do love about him. But I want you to focus on it and rejoice in him and love him for being both. And secondly, trust him. Trust him for your redemption. He is the one who redeems you fully. He atones for all your sins. He is the key. It's not you or me, (laughs) the key to our redemption, it's him. Okay, and lastly, come to him. Come to Jesus, your high priest who lives now in heaven. When you're tempted, come to him. Come to him for help. Come to him in real time. He totally gets it. He totally understands. And he is able to give you grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you so much for Jesus, your majestic son, who came among us who went through every aspect of what it is to be human. We have no greater savior. We have no greater friend. We have no one more helpful to us than is Jesus. And we praise you for him and trust him. In your name we pray, amen.
3: we come together and now in a time of confession. Let's hear these words from Hebrew four fifteen to 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, your Son, made like us in every way, tempted as we are in every way, and yet without sin. Thank you that he is our merciful and faithful High Priest. Thank you that he provides full atonement for sin, Thank you that you understand our weaknesses and failings. We now draw near to you in Jesus' name, seeking his help in our time of need. We humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way. We have done wrong and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us lead us not into temptation. When we sin, wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus our Saviour, amen. We continue to hear from Hebrews. Christ had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Phil's going to continue leading us in prayer.
2: Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that in your mercy you sent your son Jesus to live and die and that through faith and trust in his sacrifice we might be brought back into relationship with yourself. We praise you that Jesus was so deeply human that he was made to be like us and tempted in every way just as we are yet he was without sin. We thank you that because of Jesus' humanity, he is able to identify and help us in our times of need.